Welcome to Speducation, the special education podcast by speducators and for speducators, where we discuss all things related to special education, or as I like to say, speducation from the point of view of professionals working in the field. I'm Sarah Perkins, a nationally certified school psychologist currently practicing in a junior high in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'm Leanne McElwain. I'm a special ed teacher at an elementary school and have a background in secondary schools as well. In this episode, we will be discussing evaluations, why we do them, and how to make them better for us and for all students. To clarify, we both live and practice in Wyoming, and our perspective is from speducators in Wyoming. Some states have a completely different process than we do regarding evaluation, and this information may be old hat for people from those places, but this is unusual information for people in Wyoming. So, Leanne, what has your experience been giving um, special education evaluations for students? As a team member, I am coordinated, you know, or the efforts are coordinated by a school psychologist. We discuss as a team any kind of information we're wanting to gain as a result of what the parents have said, and then I follow up and complete the academic portion of the evaluation. Do you find it useful or do you find it like something that just has to happen because of the rules and regulations? I do find it useful because I go into the experience wanting to gain information. So I know sometimes it can feel like very routine and just kind of a monotonous process. But if you are being thoughtful about what you're wanting to gain from the student and their skill level, then you can make it useful. That makes sense to me. So the information that I have here is not information that Leanne and I have talked about before, really, even though we've worked together, because this is not really the model that's currently used in our school district. So this is a alternate model to the one that we use that I wanted to discuss. But I thought I'd start with the basics of why do we do an evaluation at all in special education. And legally, the purpose of an evaluation is to determine eligibility, does the student have a disability, and do they need specially designed instruction. One thing that I find where we work that we don't talk that much about is evaluation questions. Leanne was saying when she goes in knowing that she wants to gain more information, it's more helpful, and I feel like we do that in a broad sense, but not necessarily in a intentional sense in terms of having specific questions. So ideally, we would use evaluation questions to determine exactly what needs this child has. So in terms of the purposes, what the law explicitly says is we must do it every three years, but can and should do it more if we need more information, and that if there's any medical information we need, we're obligated to find that information and to pay for it. Sometimes parents are told we'll go get a diagnosis, that's illegal. Um, I still hear that sometimes. The big area that I've seen our school district pay for medical evaluations is swallow studies. I don't know, have you ever seen the district pay for outside medical evaluations beyond that? Boy, I have not. Yeah, it's not super common, I don't think, at least not around here. And then the law also says that you have to use a variety of assessment tools and strategies, which we'll talk about that, and that the tools have to be technically sound, can't discriminate, you have to be trained to use them. So all of those good practices that I think people are usually pretty familiar with when it comes to assessment. The part that I wanted to talk about was the evaluation questions. 
And I know that in, when we've worked together, Leanne, like that's not something that has explicitly come up. Has this ever, ever been something that you've talked about with any of your teams? Like what your questions um, are? I think specifically towards content, what the student knows, what the student doesn't know, but in terms of general skills, perhaps in a life skills setting, there would be some specific uh, areas that they would look at, but um, beyond that, no. Yeah, I find that it's usually, especially with reevaluations, it tends to be, you know, Joey's due for a reeval, it's yeah. time to test, and there's no thought to why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. And in my experience, it seems that usually we give very similar, if not the same test, to the vast majority of students. Yes. Like the same academic battery, mm-hmm. the psych that gives the cognitive battery, the same mm-hmm. way every time, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So what I have been thinking about is what questions could we have beyond just are they eligible? Because in Wyoming, you don't have to meet, you don't have to determine eligibility in terms of the disability beyond the initial eligibility. And then determining if a child needs specially designed instruction has been defined so loosely as to be almost a non-useful question in my experience. The team usually goes, yeah, they need it, or no, they don't. And there's not a lot of guidance on what those criteria mean. So I, I would like to see more more specific questions to that individual student asked. And so some examples of questions that I think could be asked is, these are maybe more general, but like what's been going on that impacts the student's performance? What, why has the student been performing better in one class than the other or worse? How is the student doing socially? I could see even more specific questions like, why is the student's reading fluency so much higher than their comprehension? I think ideally they would be more specific than the questions I have here. Mm -hmm. For example, I'm thinking of a student I'm working with currently and our question for him is what's changed because he was doing well in terms of social emotional functioning and now he's not. And so we want to know why is his behavior changed Mm -hmm. and you know his classes have also changed so we want to know the interaction between schedule change and home change and you know, change within the self. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about any students you have, are there any questions that I didn't touch on that you would have? No, not outside of what you've said. I think those questions are very good. Mm-hmm. So when we have our questions, then I find we can start to move through planning the evaluation in a more individualized way. And one thing that I did start doing several years ago when I was working with Leanne the secondary level is I did start beginning assessments with a file review which I had not done previously but my colleague Grant Dampier was a big fan of a review of existing data he gets mad if I call it a file review and so he he um, informed me of its usefulness and I agreed to try it and it did make a lot of sense at the secondary level because there's more information mm-hmm. available on an individual kid mm-hmm. And what I found is that it's if you start with a review, then even if you don't have questions, you probably will by the end of the review. Mm-hmm. And the review is like there's no cost for the student or for the vast majority of the staff involved. It's just the one person who's gathering the data. So it's like a low-impact evaluation source. Mm-hmm. So I like that. Um, plays into this larger model that I'd love to see implemented in Wyoming, which is called the RIOT model. So RIOT stands for Review, Interview, Observe, Test. 
And then there's also the RIA-ISIL model. So ISIL is instruction, curriculum, environment, and learner. And what they do is they put a chart where riots on one axis and ISILs on the other, and then there's 16 boxes in the middle. I have included a link to such a chart in the show notes. And then that way you can sort of look at those boxes and see what needs, what questions you have that might be answered by filling in one of those boxes. Mm -hmm. I do think you don't necessarily have to fill in all 16. That seems excessive. (laughs) So, yeah, so I always like to start with with the file review. In our work together, when we've done the file review, have you found that to be a good, a useful process? How's that been for you? Yes, absolutely. It's a good place to start, except especially for secondary. Like you said, there's a little more data at that point. And then also, typically they're not in a secondary setting as long as they were in an elementary setting, so you don't know them quite as well. So it's great to start with that. Um, and then move on to the interview. So what I've done with the review portion of the riot Mm -hmm. is I usually do it like on my own. I just, and I can fill out a document and I email it to the team. Mm -hmm. And I say, hey, Joey's due for eval. I've completed the file review. Here's my file review. I believe that I have questions about Joey's cognitive functioning and about his focus and attention. So I want to look at those areas. What do you all think? Which is what you're familiar with, Leanne, from what Mm -hmm. I've done. Mm -hmm. But I know that some of my colleagues do actual review of existing data meetings where they sit down and sort of have that conversation in person. Mm -hmm. I'm on the fence Mm -hmm. about if that would be a good use of time or if it's better just to do the email. Hmm. That's a good question. I suppose discussion may come up if you take the time to meet together and go over that data but it does seem maybe cost prohibitive at that point because it's so much time for the entire team yeah I agree I'm not necessarily compelled to do that at this point I feel like maybe if an individual student warranted it if there's something really funky like an out-of-state transfer that was really weird and they were homeschooled and there was a lot of unusual circumstances mm-hmm. yeah. but otherwise i feel like i agree yeah with Just, typical need i wouldn't do that and then but with higher need or perhaps more specialists involved it could be helpful Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I like about the review is you don't need consent to look at documents, of course. And you can look at documents that are outside of special education, but are still obviously educational, like attendance Mm -hmm. and behavior data, which we do. One thing I haven't done that just occurred to me when I was preparing for the show that I could add to my file review is progress towards goals. Mm. Mm -hmm. That would... That would make good sense. Right? Mm-hmm. I think that the reason I haven't done it is because I don't feel like we have reached a point in our district where we have like great goals or great progress data. Mm-hmm. But if we grow in that area, then I think that could be useful. Because if you know that they have an English goal and they haven't met that goal, that's mm-hmm. really useful in the IEP planning, at least, if not the evaluation as well. Yeah, I think it's very helpful because recently in my PLAFs and my present levels, I have been describing their progress on current goals so that it's an introduction to the team for what the student has been working on and that level 
yeah. in that goal area. It sort of goes to that um, thing that the Wyoming Department of Education always tells us when we're under corrective action about like telling the story and connecting yes. the thread. I think they would like that. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So it's one step completed that someone else doesn't have to do just by themselves, and the team considers it as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So... I got sort of excited, but talking about the review, but one of the nice things about this model and more generally before we move on from review is that it actually meets the criteria for a comprehensive evaluation because the law says a variety of tools and strategies. And I feel like this is often interpreted to mean you have to give more than one standardized assessment. Mm -hmm. And I find that to be potentially not that useful. Whereas if we use a variety of tools such as review and observation and interview, and t- then we've met that criteria of being a comprehensive evaluation while also ensuring that it's useful to us. Mm-hmm. So I like that. I, I like that we can almost like argue with a parent advocate or, who, or the state or whoever we need to know it is comprehensive because we used these different approaches mm-hmm. without having to invest all this one-on-one time in testing. Right. Which is so expensive. No, I, see, I think that would be valuable, and you don't want to put the student through testing if you're if it's not necessary. So if you're being thoughtful about why you're going ahead with something, then I think there's more likely to have buy-in even from the student at some ages. Yeah, I think you're right. Mm-hmm. So once we've done the review, then we could do the interview process. I, this, in terms of consent, we said the review, definitely you don't need consent. That's pretty black and white. Obviously, for like testing, you definitely do need consent. The interview is sort of in a gray area to me because if a parent talks to you and they answer your questions, like you have consent, I would say if it were me and I was going to be pulling a kid out of class to interview them, I would get consent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems to make sense. But I think you could talk to teachers... I don't, tell me what you think. I feel like talking to teachers is almost like a review of existing data. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree with that. So I think the adults, the teachers and parents you could talk to without consent if mm-hmm. you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Best practice would be get consent. Mm-hmm. Um, also related to best practice, probably after the review or maybe even before, depending on where I was in the evaluation, how clear I was in our evaluation questions, I would call the parents and ask them what their evaluation questions are. And that is another thing that the state's been looking for lately is parent involvement. Mm -hmm. And then you can note on the consent for evaluation that the parent was concerned about math, Mm -hmm. for example. Yes, that has been my experience primarily because I've worked with you. (laughs) So you've always talked to parents about what their concerns are, what they're looking for, what questions they have to have answers for, and yeah. And one thing in our district that I think is not always true in the smaller Wyoming districts is that this, like, interview process in particular is a divide-and-conquer thing. So the parent interviews tends to be, in our district, the social workers do that, and then the teacher interviews tends to sort of be, at least in writing, maybe the case manager or, yeah, and then, like, the student interview could be the psych or the social worker. And so it's not one person doing gathering all that information, whereas I think in the smaller districts it might be. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I don't so. know. I think that I like having multiple people involved. Mm-hmm. I wonder how it feels to parents if it can get overwhelming with the number of phone calls or the number of the amount of paperwork sent home. Maybe that would 
to be dependent on the student need. If there's a lot of need, then perhaps one contact would make sense. But. I think that's a good point, and it makes me think that maybe made me think of rating scales, sending mm-hmm. those home, because those are time intensive, mm-hmm. and I feel like they sort of do fit maybe in this interview category, mm-hmm. and I tend to try, I only ever give a student one rating scale and the adults in their life two at most, mm. but I think depending on the family, that even even that can be too hard, mm-hmm. either in terms of reading level or time commitment. Right. And I, have, I don't have a great answer for that. Mm-hmm. It does seem student-specific and... You know, being able to understand what's going on in the family's life, what other demands they have, what makes sense for that time period. Absolutely. So in terms of the observation, I have to say this is not my area of strength, I guess. I tend to, especially working at the secondary, I feel like it's so hard to observe a student in a meaningful way when they move all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, because they have six classes a day mm-hmm. and advisory and then every quarter the seventh graders switch electives Mm -hmm. and so watching them in you know one computer science class is not really going to be that meaningful and I just don't have the time to give Mm -hmm. to watch them lots of places right I do feel like again if you're doing the same thing for every kid you're doing it wrong so certainly Mm -hmm. don't do that right it would be interesting if the team came up with a question like why is this student only acting out in an elective class to then just observe that elective class and find out also there could be some interviews through that or whatever but you know just in terms of each individual student you might be able to identify one area of observation cafeteria yeah yeah and I wonder because so Leanne now works with a different school psychologist. So I'm wondering, at your current school, does one person do the observation for every kid, or do you divvy it out depending on the student need and what you're looking for? Hmm. I think um, this year it's been one person completing the observations. Because I tend to think, and this is potentially... I was going to say laziness, but I'm going to go more positive. This is actually, I think, originally started because of time constraints on my, my part, but also I really truly believed I wasn't the best person to observe, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to academic needs. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like you're so much more suited to observe student reading, mm-hmm. and you're going to see something mm-hmm. where I, I'm going to see they can't read very good. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because I really have only focused on observations I've made during testing and allowed other team members to observe in the classroom. It's an area for growth or perhaps future discussions to ask if it if it is beneficial to switch up who's doing the observation. Yeah, like even if it wasn't you, like you're the case manager, you teach him reading, maybe you observing the student reading would just be more of the same, like mm-hmm. you're already doing that. Right. But maybe if you're colleague another resource mm-hmm. teacher observed him reading right. that might be more useful than like the psych or the social worker mm-hmm. yeah. I wonder I mean it would be interesting to know if I'm teaching reading in a small group setting to then observe and see those skills implemented or generalized into that gen ed setting that would be fun mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. one one thing I don't like about observations the pet peeve of mine is when every evaluation has like a time on task observation yeah 
it's just not useful because a lot of our, I mean, okay, a lot of our students struggle with time on tests, but one, we already knew that before we went in. Mm-hmm. And the students who don't struggle, it's completely useless to say, oh, they were on test 92% of the time. Like, we also knew that going in. Right, exactly. So ideally, again, this I think this is an area of growth for me, but ideally I'd like to see observations give you something that mm-hmm. you didn't know. Mm-hmm. Or at mm-hmm. least that the larger team didn't know. Mm-hmm. So then the last area, we've done the review, we've done the interview, we've done the observation. Only finally do we do the testing, the the actual standard, standardized, individually administered assessment. Um, so I think it really makes sense. This model, one of the things I love about it is it puts that last because of the cost to the student mm-hmm. and also the cost to the school mm-hmm. in terms of equipment and time mm-hmm. and training. Mm-hmm. Um, because we know that not all resource teachers are ready to give the assessments, mm-hmm. and so we have to do the training. And in some schools, the resource teachers don't do it. But mm-hmm. in our the, in our culture, that's how it's built. Mm-hmm. I also, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like over time, I've personally placed less and less emphasis on these assessments as being meaningful. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. I have too, and I've worked with administrators and school psychologists that have, to the other extreme, said these tests absolutely have to be given every time, and that, uh, to me, is a big waste of time and cost to the students. So I prefer to be more thoughtful and individualized. And in the danger of being a maybe overly broad or getting in a soapbox, I wonder if the emphasis on assessment and sort of saying like only a formal assessment gives you actual real data mm-hmm. is a way of sidelining professional opinion mm-hmm. and saying you know the person who's taught the student math every day mm-hmm. for a year for a hundred hours worth mm-hmm. that their opinion doesn't matter but this one hour that a school psychologist who works here a day a week has spent with them mm-hmm. that's the end-all be-all on math data mm-hmm. I find that belittling to mm-hmm. our our fellow speducators Right, and we know that students can perform differently, uh, sometimes in a more relaxed setting or, I mean, if we're only looking for how a student performs on a standardized test, okay, (laughs) that's not very helpful (laughs) in my mind because that's not the real world. Yeah, exactly. Like everybody sitting in a room one-on-one is going to do differently than sitting Mm -hmm. in a classroom with 25 of their friends and frenemies and enemies. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. So yeah, I, I feel like as I go, the more I tend to think, is this actually going to ask, answer a question? Mm-hmm. The other pet peeve I have around specifically standardized academic assessments is the throwing the whole battery at it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd really like to see leaning into if the student's only struggling in math, even though we have this fat book that mm-hmm. could do all the tests, mm-hmm. maybe we just test math. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's a valuable question as well. And I like giving the formal, like a formal process to it because then it's not one person person deciding. It's the teams knowing along the way why we're asking the questions we are and why we're testing what we're testing. Yeah, they're like the formal so riot more, process. Yeah, it's yeah. so much more thorough. And I would think beneficial to the entire process. Absolutely. And I would think, I actually think that some of the subtests on those standardized academic assessments that like feed into the composite scores 
are not actually relevant to like real world learning. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking in particular spelling and math computation at the secondary level. Mm-hmm. Like they all have calculators. I don't necessarily care if they know their multiplication facts when they're mm-hmm. 14. Mm-hmm. I know that is interesting to to discuss and think about. <laughs> and I could see like some parents having a different perspective and and therefore different values and wanting their student to know you know the math facts so therefore maybe for that student you would go ahead and test and monitor growth in that area yeah absolutely I agree um so I guess for this approach the riot ISIL model as I said I think it's a worthwhile approach to at least consider when approaching an assessment and maybe like you said it it objectifies the, the process a little mm-hmm. bit so it's not you being the difficult person on your SPED team. Mm-hmm. It's why don't we try this process that's research based and it de-emphasizes the getting a standardized score mm-hmm. as the end all be all for the students mm-hmm. especially because you know assessments aren't like this this magical knower of things. It's mm-hmm. just one tool so to say this one number represents this child's entire reading ability mm-hmm. is overly reductive in my mind. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a really good way to encourage team engagement mm-hmm. by allowing the professionals to be the the knowers of mm-hmm. the child. Mm-hmm. I agree. So I would argue that if we could just take our time to really pause at the beginning of the assessment, we could save ourselves time and do a more authentic job for all our students and still meet the criteria for for the you know comprehensive evaluation mm-hmm. and save ourselves time and money and save our kids time. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I think about is if paperwork is not doing work for you, mm-hmm. then you're you're not using it correctly. Mm-hmm. So if an evaluation is paperwork that's extra to your job, mm-hmm. then that that you're not using that evaluation as uh, to its potential. Mm-hmm. And so ideally the the evaluation should give you something to build an IEP on. If it's just existing off to the side and your real work is over here, then... Right. It shouldn't only be informative in area of eligibility. It should give you <laughs> helpful information for moving forward with the student. And I would think that this te- the um, parents would appreciate the individualized discussion, thoughtfulness going into what you're looking for and why because then it really evens the playing field in terms of who's informing the team process I I like that yeah gives them equal gives Mm -hmm. the families equal weight to the educators Mm -hmm. I like Mm -hmm. that one thing that your comment made me think of is I when I call parents at the beginning of the evaluation I say you know looking at your child's file review I'm thinking that I'm interested in these areas Mm -hmm. But I don't put in writing or anywhere explicitly say the evaluations the or the evaluation questions that the team has formulated are thus and so. Right. And I wonder if that might be useful. And maybe at the beginning of the of the evaluation like review meeting, we could say, you know, we agreed at the beginning of this process that our evaluations for Joey were, you know, why has he not made growth in reading and what is getting in the way of him turning work on outside on time. And so in order to answer these questions, here's the things we did. I wonder if that might make it a little more meaningful. I think so, and it completes the circle. It It's a nice check 
to just kind of make sure did we uh, master or get the information that we wanted and I mean the nice thing is is if it's not useful at that point you could still gather more Mm. you know like just because you have one set of questions if you're finding you're off track you could go back and correct it yeah. yeah, I think that's a good point. I think often we as educators tend to, like once we're in the meeting mm-hmm. with the parents, it's like it's do or die. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, you can always say, mm-hmm. now that we're talking, Mom, I realize I didn't get any information on his work completion, mm-hmm. and that does sound like a concern. So would you mind if we wait a week and I get some information and we meet, get back together? And right. parents usually are pretty receptive and respectful of people who want to know more about their kid. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I think I've come out of this conversation with some ideas I want to change in my own process. So I'm excited about that. And I hope that it's been helpful for other people. I'd love to know how other districts um, within the state or around the country, wherever, do this sort of evaluation planning process. And if Mm -hmm. there's some other model that works even better than the Riot model, that would be really interesting. I agree. To check out more, I plan to download that form and just see how it informs my next process. Education, education.